Have you pre-ordered the genetic lottery yet? Oh, God. I'm so excited. Uh, I haven't been I was... this excited in years for a new book. No, I'm just like, <laughs> I want the genetic lottery to be somehow merged in its marketing with the Pennsylvania lottery so that the mascot <laughs> is that little groundhog, uh, Gus. <laughs> It's, you, guys are, you guys are familiar with Gus the PA Lottery Groundhog, right? No, is no. that uh, off-brand Punxsutawney Phil? Yeah, he's basically. like he's like the official spokesperson, and his the motto of the Pennsylvania Lottery, perhaps like the motto of the genetic lottery, is keep on scratching. Oh my god. <laughs> Welcome to the Dev Panel. To support the show and get access to the second weekly bonus episode, become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. This week's episode was awesome. I got to sit down with Charlotte Shane to talk about her recent Gawker piece, which was pushing back on liberal talking points about abortion. And It was really good. Yeah, it was inspiring to just talk about how, on the whole, we need to start thinking bigger, you know, towards strategies of civil disobedience. So that's a nice spicy one that's behind the paywall just for patrons. Also, if you didn't hear last week's public episode or the other ones where we've announced it, as you can tell already, this is coming out on Friday uh, as opposed to Thursdays. Just for at least the next couple of months, we're going to be patron episodes on Tuesdays and public episodes on Fridays. So yep. here we are. Anyways, uh, that episode from this past Tuesday is a great listen. So become a patron. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, you can always share the show with your friends. You can post about your favorite episodes or follow us at death panel underscore. So, um, plugs aside, later on in the episode, we have a real treat. We're going to talk about the buzz, all of the hot buzz (laughs) surrounding Catherine Page Harden and her new book, The Genetic Lottery, (laughs) which is just the latest in a long, long line of attempts to rebrand eugenics as woke eugenics. To rehabilitate it, if you will. (laughs) But um, before that, which will be a lot of fun, we need to check in on the state of the pandemic response, because unfortunately, we have just sailed through some of the most grim milestones yet in the pandemic. So just for context, uh, where the United States is at with COVID right now, on Friday, September 10th, we are well past 20 days of 1,000 deaths a day. And it's worth remembering that deaths tend to lag by a month and a half. So we are not doing great right now. And uh, we've sailed past 650,000 people dead in the United States. The United States currently has the highest recorded excess mortality in the world right now, which is a 22% increase. And this comes from a paper tracking excess mortality all over the world. We are just doing terrible. And of course, you know, the most important context is that We are in this uh, situation where spread is bad despite the vaccine. Deaths are continuing apace and unemployment benefits, which as we've been talking about for over a year now, were one of the most important programs protecting people from, you know, just being thrown straight into the COVID meat grinder. That was allowed to just expire on Labor Day of all days (laughs) without a finger lifted from the Biden administration. Yeah. And the Biden administration also has just, of course, released its brand new plan out of the pandemic, which is uh, unsurprisingly missing nearly anything that would be seriously helpful in curbing spread. 
So despite that, it's obviously also being blasted from both sides as being some sort of authoritarian overreach. So I thought yes. it would be good to, yeah. <laughs> to get into like what's uh, going JD on. J.D. Vance and Glenn Greenwald, what a just like a match made in heaven. Just really, <laughs> yeah, I don't know really if that qualifies as both sides. Is that even exactly. both sides? <laughs> no, like, I would say like both sides of the like uh, COVID both denialism. Both sides of what passes yeah. for a political spectrum. Like every, right. every type of COVID denialist is like coming out against this very like very like bare bones bad plan right well, well yeah i mean but then uh, simultaneously i think the the true sort of uh uh you know what quote unquote both sides are up to thing is obviously you know for uh more revanchist segments of the uh body politic uh your greenwalds and your jd vances it's uh yeah this Dacronian overreach this uh i think uh greenwald himself did this tweet uh that was like my my goodness the the authority and power that has been vested in the presidency all all of a sudden <laughs> as though you know osha didn't exist or wasn't a thing or as we'll as we'll get into as though these things that are being uh advanced that were advanced in biden's speech on thursday are not even just kind of like shadows of what was uh initially suggested in terms of like what the what specifically just the osha response could have been right but then of course like on the other side the quote-unquote other side of that you have like oh my god what a game changer uh biden's finally like this is the it's a real signal of leadership biden's really taking this seriously Honestly, right. what isn't a signal of leadership to the commentators that want to read anything <laughs> as a signal of leadership or true presidency moments? You know what I mean? It's really. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, I, I, I keep thinking about how, uh, in a way, this is a like an awkward kind of position that the president ends up being in, because if you think about like the big presidential initiatives that the president makes sort of emergency like speeches on. They tend to be like one of two flavors. You have the, you know, classic original flavor uh, war. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you've got classic original flavor um, economy. Right. Those are the two (laughs) major. And if you think like that's the way that the 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 imperial so-called presidency developed over time. It's like those are the two like reasons why doctor win the war and like doctor save the economy. Um, (laughs) But, and, and like, it's, it's interesting to me that we've like began the week with the, you know, white house just sort of like waving uh, at the end of the extended unemployment benefits and just unceremoniously just, you know, no one paying attention to that at all. Um, And we sort of ended the week with, this, you know, uh, what, you know, looks like, you know, this huge sort of like leadership initiative, which by the way, like we had been talking, I think just even like a few weeks ago, like, Hey, what about that? Like whole pandemic testing board, that whole like wartime looking effort. (laughs) And we see now it's like, Oh, we're going to offer tests at cost. (laughs) Right. There's still going to be $16, but not only that, but we have, we have spoken to major retailers like Amazon and Kroger, and they have agreed to, sell them at cost right but right. i digress i digress because that, well, that in, cost too you know what i the, mean in the scale of this though right the thing that's going to be it already is this um you know jim jordan is like citing <laughs> george washington didn't like vaccines and like cool. i don't like you know and, and we now have you know the uh jd vance urging people to like engage in in civil disobedience it's like wow just 
way, way to really like author yourself, like write yourself like into like the history books here or something. You know, I don't know what kind of history history books that are sold. I don't know at uh, you know at the grocery at the grocery <laughs> checkout. Um, but but I I think that the the push on the vaccine mandate. I think I think what's sort of interesting about it to me is how sort of belated it is and how right. like in terms of being coupled to other things in OSHA, how we've just sort of waited for this OSHA change OSHA standard since like eight March, yeah. February, right? Earlier. And I, I think, think yeah. the the question for me is like why now? Um, what's the, why, why do you see this sort of push now? And it, it's like, seems pretty obvious, right? To me that, you know, the, if the presidency is really an institution that's a, supposed to, it was like built to manage the modern capitalist economy. Uh, I think we can sort of fairly say that, um, ne- never forget, of course, like that the unemployment rate itself was one of these tools that was supposed to like somehow soothe labor management relations uh, in the era of like large strikes, um, you know, it's like to, to sort of like be able to like predict or preempt, you know, you know, great conflagrations. Um, but the the news that came out, I think, in the past couple of weeks is that you have the forecasters at like Goldman Sachs, other um, uh, forecasting uh, agencies who are just like cutting their growth forecasts for the rest of 2020. And that is, that tends to be the kind of thing that the president tries to manage only in this case, what the forecasters say pretty clearly is those, those revised forecasts where they're like cutting projected growth in half is related to Delta. And so like, to me, that's, it's, it seems not so implausible. It's like even sort of not even in the subtext, but like the text of the speech, like that's the, you know, it was okay. Everything was fine uh, for a while, um, as as uh, Brian Ferry sings. Um, <laughs> but like, but now Delta uh, is here, and 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 the victim number one, patient number one, is economic growth. Well, I mean, I think as you say, it doesn't even have to be, have to be subtext. Um, I can make it text for you right now, actually. Um, I think it's really important that as you, as actually both of you brought up, um, you know, you both mentioned that like, since we last spoke about the pandemic specifically, we've had this, you know, on Labor Day, the enhanced unemployment benefits, the pandemic unemployment Mm -hmm. benefits were just, you know, unceremoniously, um, you know, it was to the extent that it was reported even on the fact that those uh, benefits were just allowed to expire. uh, At the very least, you know, we had at least a couple couple of things in I think the the New York Times and the Post saying explicitly that yes, you know, the Biden administration did not lift a finger on this. They did not attempt to keep these um, renewed or anything like that. I, I, but I think that what, what's really important about uh, bringing that up other than obviously that being just sort of a horrible event and a horrible just a horrible thing to do, frankly, as a response to this uh, pandemic. I think that what, what's really important to underline is that you know, we could talk all about this, what, you know, people uh, setting their fucking hair on fire about liberty or, or whatever with the, <laughs> with the assertion that companies over 100 employees have to have their employees uh, vaccinated. But this like I see this announcement as fundamentally tied to exactly the same. like there is a direct through line between the decisions made to just let those unemployment benefits expire and the announcement that was made on Thursday. Um, and I, and I want to explain what I mean by that exactly. So for example, 
before the uh, unemployment benefits did expire, you had all this reporting coming out that was saying that basically what was happening within the White House was specifically Biden and Biden economic advisors were sort of teeing things up for a uh, like a quote unquote, um, I think I saw it referred to this in a couple of reports, quote unquote, handoff from the sort of enhanced unemployment assistance uh, of this, you know, this uh, temporary uh, pandemic social program back to sort of the private sector being responsible for, you know, managing employment and having uh, like keeping people afloat economically or whatever you have specifically, for example, here's from the New York Times, August, August 31st, Cecilia Rouse, chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, uh, quoted as saying, quote, we won't feel totally completely normal until we have whether we want to call it herd immunity or a greater fraction of percentage of the American population is vaccinated. As we conquer the virus, she said, we will regain normalcy. Elsewhere in that same report, quote, they stress that uh, they being the Biden economic advisors stress that increasing the nation's vaccination rate is the most important economic policy the administration can pursue to accelerate growth and lift consumer confidence. So if you take that logic to its, you know, obvious conclusion, I think that there's a very direct line between they know that they want to do, regardless of the actual state of the pandemic, because clearly, as we can probably talk about, they, uh, you know, even in Biden's speech, he specifically calls out, he uses the, we have a pandemic of the unvaccinated line in his speech and his like big, highly promoted, this will be, you know, our renewed path out of the pandemic speech, right? He uses this phrase again, we have a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And then specifically, the policies are about, uh, you know, they've allowed pandemic unemployment assistance to expire. And now it's, I think it's pretty clear that they see this as one of, uh, you know, obviously, like, I think everyone, like everyone should get vaccinated, but it seems like they see this as the way that if they're going to like have this, if they're going to allow for this handoff to happen, right. And, you know, in, in so, in so doing basically demonstrate that their main, uh, policy concerns are in fact the perpetuation and management of the economy, as I think Phil is talking about, like if they're going to have this handoff, this putative handoff occur, then what they think needs to happen essentially is to make sure that to quote from Biden's speech, you protect vaccinated employees from unvaccinated employees by making sure that those unvaccinated employees, et cetera, at least in, I guess, companies that qualify gig workers are not mentioned, for example, um, that as much as possible, you know, that those sections of the workforce are vaccinated so that they can just sort of allow, you know, these uh, these programs to expire and push towards their, you know, their like other initiatives and kind of go back to like, you know, it, it clearly all seems aimed towards just getting back to what was their agenda and not not really worrying about any of the well, major changes that have happened in between. Right. I mean, I, I think that the the thing for me is this this moment sort of exposes these contradictions in like what the pre- like ostensibly this is a speech about uh, dealing with a a pandemic right as as right. we've come to expect um, but at the same time what it really is is like a speech about managing the economy and there are these contradictions uh, within this so like immediately after the speech is given you have all of these announcements and we have like this like essentially marketplace of people <laughs> who are. You know, <laughs> in, in this space, in the huge gap that's like left by the weakness of the American healthcare system, all of this like incredible like 
there's this incredible market for like bullshit that passes his knowledge. And, you know, you have all these people, you know, it's a good, it's a good, you know, uh, less than half, but still like a, a pretty significant minority of people that, uh, don't want to get vaccinated. And of course, you know, that it's not all hardcore, uh, resistance to vaccination. I don't think there's any more like polarization on, on vaccination that, that could happen that already has. Um, but I think that the question for me is, okay, so what happens when this doesn't have the effect on the core industries that have been uh, hampered by Delta? Uh, what happens when this doesn't make the dent that the administration hopes that it does, right? Um, and and I think that's, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's what will happen. I'm just saying it's if, if it's possible... What then? Because I think the the whole idea with this strategy is it's not the idea is to like have your cake and eat it too. You right. can have a an an approach to like dealing with the pandemic and without sacrificing economic growth. Like that contradiction that uh, that we sort of saw, you know, for like the last year. The idea is like, oh, we can we can deal with that, right? We don't have to like address that. But what happens when it doesn't work? Well, then other measures, other things that the federal government could be doing, perhaps should be doing, if you think about the uh, Biden administration's like stance on the eviction moratorium or like on, on unemployment, like all of these other things, you know, essentially are instruments that would have to come back into play. But that, again, brings brings out this sort of contradiction in the president's role in like managing the capitalist economy. Right. And so, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, obviously, I'm like, yes, this is good. More people should. Uh, be vaccinated. That is a good the thing. At least they did something. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like I, <laughs> I, I think it is a good idea to do what to use the power of the federal government uh, to do things like protect public health. That's what OSHA is there for. Um, it frankly, there's a lot of other things you could have done. You could have done a masking requirement through OSHA. By the way, um, yep. if you really wanted mm -hmm. to manage the pandemic, incidentally. But I think for me, it's like okay, I hope this works. If it doesn't, though, we're back to the contradictions again. And I don't see how, like it to me. It's like there's no countervailing pressure. Like the reason that uh, the Biden administration like doesn't really seemingly have to worry about the, you know, letting the eviction moratorium expire or, you know, letting the unemployment benefits expire is like they're not worried that people are going to like do any sort of uprising over that. There's no there's no like countervailing force they're they're thinking about uh in this case though they're like they are responding to the projections of the gdp that's that's that is the object that's like forcing movement mm -hmm. no and i think the other thing too that just is very very frustrating to me is that you don't have to be an expert to look at what's actually been proposed and laid out i know we've said like oh it exceeds our expectations or we weren't even expecting this but i think it's important to sort of drill down what are they even really offering with this and how are they proposing to enforce it? Because I have serious doubts that there is the ability to follow through on these um, fines that everyone's getting upset about. I mean, we were joking um, off mic earlier this morning about how Madison Cawthorn, in response to the fact that, you know, there's going to be like a, an OSHA fine for employers over 100 who have over 100 employees who refuse to implement vaccine mandates within their um, 
employ like employee stock or whatever madison cawthorn's like i'm gonna introduce a bill to get rid of osha and you have all these people that are like so upset about you know there's gonna be a fine imposed but realistically speaking um we've talked about osha a lot off and on um throughout the spring in particular and um osha does not really have the capacity to enforce this stuff yeah absolutely Um, not also like the the sick pay and quarantine pay mandate that Biden had promised that was the whole point of his like OSHA stuff, which was dropped months ago and nobody said a word about. Yeah. That's also not in this. Right. So there is actually really not um, there isn't really a plan for what happens if breakthrough infections continue at the pace that they're continuing. What they have instead is this sort of forced reframe of breakthrough infections saying, oh, it's this very rare Occurrence, right? It's something that really, rarely doesn't happen. And the fact of the matter is, is that we actually have no real clue how often breakthrough infections are happening because the Biden administration discouraged surveillance testing also, months ago. Also important to say, not to interrupt you, but important to mention that the line that uh, Biden cites specifically in his speech about it the uh you know one one in five thousand people have uh, breakthrough infections which he which was a daily figure which he which he in in his uh, speech i think and in the document that the white house released is reduced to i think uh i can't remember if it's like just overall or weekly or a something weekly but figure, yeah. yeah um that essentially that, that that doesn't that doesn't like come from some recent uh you know good like high quality study that comes from a david leonhart op-ed basically for like a morning newsletter from the new york times from earlier this week so yeah anyway so so again you know I think this question you brought up, Phil, about what's going to happen when the rubber meets the road and the reality, the very clear reality that this um, plan to get back to normal is not going to necessarily like curb spread the way they're promising it. I think that this is this is really um, just honestly a matter of, of days, if not weeks at the pace that we're going, because unfortunately, right now we are seeing like higher percentages of cases than we were, um, you know, this time in 2020 in a lot of communities and a lot of counties. There are, you know, contrary to the Great Barrington Declaration and Monica Gandhi's like insistence, you know, that children don't get sick and Martin Kulldorff's insistence for months that reopening schools was totally fine. Well, there are a lot of children who are very sick and dying now, like left and right. So we have this um, like snowball Right. That's moving forward and it's picking up bodies as it rolls down the hill. This is how exponential spread works. There is nothing in the Biden plan that actually really seeks to address the momentum of the pandemic right now. Right. And I think that that's like a really important framework because people, I think a lot of people who are very hopeful about this, they hear any criticism of the mitigation measures that have been proposed and they're like, oh, you're inviting vaccine skepticism right. or like you got to have faith. And it's like, no, no, no. I'm saying like, yeah, it's great. More people need to be vaccinated. You know, that's that's being proposed. Also, however, the time to do stuff this limited was months ago. Also, right. And however, no. like <laughs> there is no acknowledgement in this document as to how much time it takes between first vaccination and having immunity. There is no discussion of mitigation measures 
to take concurrent right. with rolling yeah, out I, this vaccine expansion. And, and ultimately, what that is, is a document and a plan that offers zero solutions for slowing the pace of infection. B, that's such a good point. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I would count myself as somebody who like saw this and I was like, you know what? I am, I'm hopeful about like, yes, more people getting vaccines. Good. I'm hopeful about that. But I do think it's like, it's not you like it's uh, the idea that there's just this one narrow path to getting out of this is like, well, yeah, there's, we can kick some of these decisions to, to like vaccination, but it doesn't deal with spread in the, in the interim. And of course, like to think about OSHA, OSHA still, I think, has to promulgate the rule. There need to be guidelines developed. There's a whole chain of things that have to happen that do push the actual like, I hate to use the phrase shots in arms, uh, <laughs> like, you know, into the future a little bit. Um, and but but I think this is like where I keep coming back to this like contradiction is all of the things that we're talking about, uh, all of those other like mitigation measures, those have always, they've always had this like ontological status. It's just like, mm, yeah, they're nice to have, but mm, duh, they just, just too much cost, like too much cost. I mean, if we want to, if we want to, like, <laughs> yeah, we've been doing the cost benefit analysis the whole time. And it's like, that mm, just gets us back to a place of the economy where we don't want to be. And then we, and then we have to go back and do things like uh, more unemployment benefits. And we have to go back and do things like the eviction moratorium again. And like, that's the thing It's like, <laughs> the point is, as long as you can eschew blame for a certain slice of these outcomes which i think it it's not it's not uh insane to suggest that they can right i think that they will avoid blame for a certain slice of these outcomes and they're just like okay well this week we can ha we can have our cake and eat it too because our democratic what, what like passes for like an electoral democracy is so just mm -hmm. like enervated. Mm -hmm, absolutely. No. And I, I think, and this is something we'll get into in the second half of the episode as well. I think part of the problem is that there's this very pervasive idea that, that workers as a category are very fungible, right? That there's this um, replaceability to someone who has a skilled job because we think of that skilled worker as being, you know, a combination of different metrics or measurements. You know, they have this proficiency, they have this um, training on this software, whatever. We don't tend to think of workers as individual people. We think of them as sort of replaceable units, right? With comparable skills and comparable um, value and use, right? And we sort of use this really simplified way of looking at the labor force to dictate all of our policy. And it's no surprise that what happens at the end, if this is the assumption going into the process of like creating labor protections, that a worker is in essence sort of a, a, a an individual signifier and a replaceable one at that that can be sort of molded and crafted with the right ingredients and recipe, then it's absolutely no surprise that you have policies which do not take into account the value of the individual's life of the worker, right? That do, you know, present these sort of fixes for uh, how to protect people in the workplace 
in this sort of behavioralist framework of, okay, well, we need to incentivize vaccination and we need to get everybody back out there because ultimately the ones who don't survive don't matter to the people who are making the policies because they are under this assumption that the sort of individual as a unit, as a worker, is this fungible token that can just be replaced with the next one. Well, I mean, I think before we get too abstract, though, I do want to just take a moment to because we've been talking about all this, this stuff a little bit, I want to trace back to the conversation that we had about whether or not this will do anything. And I want I think we should be really kind of explicit in some of our maybe specific, uh, some of the sort of specific things that we can uh, say, just to play wet blanket for a second <laughs> just so anyone who thinks like oh this will solve it or whatever uh or even people who think just like oh it's a it's like a political push or something to just like show show might or something i don't know you know what i mean a, a couple things one as i mentioned before um you know this this policy says like absolutely nothing about gig workers right. um the the exact percentage of like how many people that actually constitutes in the united states is you know, relatively in flux, but it really a lot of a lot of sources say it's really about like a third of people in the workforce are. Uh, I was going to say employed. Technically, it's not employed. I guess so, you know are contracted as uh, in like gig workforce, um, gig jobs and stuff like that. This doesn't touch them mm-hmm. necessarily. Um, if it does, it's not. Uh, it has not been made explicit how or whether it will. Another thing is, as Phil brought up before, this is just about vaccines. This says nothing about masks. Particularly also one thing that I want to add, it says nothing about ventilation or mm-hmm. anything like that, even though there's all this stuff that we, you know, as, as B mentioned, um, I think she's totally correct in saying like the, the difficulties or the, the lack of the, you know, it will be unsurprising if this is mostly just sort of not enforced, uh, really knowing that OSHA is under-resourced, for example, just imagining that they're obviously, this isn't going to exactly touch like everybody. And that's, you know, this obviously maybe speaks to the problems of doing this through, cause it's, you know, it's not, people are saying like, oh, this is, this is the vaccine mandate or whatever, but it's not really, it's just kind of telling like the, the, like it's telling businesses to take care of this, which is, I think not, I maintain, as I've said a a bunch of times in like the last few months, like having like businesses, having your boss be the pass through as to, you know, whether or under what circumstances or how you're able to get the vaccine is a really shitty um, way to go about all of this. But then, so even imagining that they, that this was like really enforceable that as you put this in, you know, that that is what happens, that like all the people who are covered under this putatively do then become vaccinated regardless of, you know, whether they would have uh, like personally chosen to or not. You do have these other really important extenuating circumstances like masking, like ventilation, all of that stuff, which is frankly, when we're in a situation where there is so much transmission all around the entire country, like those are just as those are absolutely just as important of interventions uh, if you're not going to go to even like f- even further and beyond it, which I would which we would obviously argue for. But like at the very least, those kinds of things, making sure that if there is going to be uh, if there are going to be people in the workplace that they should be masked and there should be like good quality ventilation. Right. right. Like, and and, and also not to um, 
What did you say? Be a wet blanket earlier already? Not to be the wet blanket of the hour, but if every single unvaccinated person who was eligible to be vaccinated got their first dose tomorrow, it would be six weeks before that population would be protected. Right. Like and that's critically left out of this. And also um, shout out to friend of the show, Justin Feldman, who pointed out that the limitation of companies with greater than 100 workers um, this is according to March 2020 data. So he's saying, you know, like a lot of people have actually been laid off since then. So this might um, not necessarily be a totally accurate figure, but it is a pretty reasonable estimate. But uh, about 38 percent of private sector workers are not covered um, as being employed by uh, companies that have more than 100 employers. So you've got like 38% of private sector workers and then roughly a third of gig worker, a third of the segment of workers is gig workers who also aren't covered. Like this is already a protection plan with a huge hole right in the middle with like arrows pointing to it because, you know, indoor dining isn't being closed. Schools are staying open and there's this enormous portion of the population that doesn't even fall under this basically unenforceable vaccine mandate. It sort of reminds me of the old neologism, uh, no solution, no problem. Right. <laughs> you know? yeah. I, I feel like Absolutely that's... Absolutely, though. And, and that's, uh, to, to, to be clear, like, that is not just like a, a funny thing that people say. That's like in textbooks on policy analysis. <laughs> that's like a thing that is taught. I mean, it's like that, that you, you know, if there's not a solution like within your scope of like authority it's not a you you have to go back and like sort of redefine the problem i mean and that's like essentially in in a variety of different ways that's what they've been trying to they've been trying to find something that's like okay within the scope of this like and you can one can understand why they might be doing this but it's it, in a way it's just like it it does have this way of reshaping what what one's expectations uh, are or should be. And and if you think about it, it's like, you know, at moments of crisis, of course, you're going to try to work with the authority you have. But at some point, you have to recognize the limits to that and say, like, OK, this is a crisis, uh, need different kinds of authority, need different kinds of institutions. Like, it should be a moment of, like, rethinking what that map mm-hmm. looks like, so to speak, which is why this all like to go back to the beginning of the year, it's just like all these arguments about how this is some new political moment or this like, you know, critical juncture, this like turning point in the way that like American institutions work. It's just like, no, it's not. Not at all. Like yeah. there's no like really not at all. Like not even rem- like not even in a New Deal sense, like not remotely. Um, <laughs> God, yeah. Like it's just it's yeah. I mean, it's. Even like Nixon did like price wage and price controls. Yeah, Um, I think we should probably move on shortly. But I think lest anyone, uh, you know, hear that and think that maybe we're just being overly pessimistic or something. I just want to highlight a couple of uh, phrases from specifically the I just want to highlight basically the tone that Biden took to his to his speech. I'm not going to play a clip and do that to you, but. There, there are just a couple of lines that I think reveal a lot of what the the sort of administration or policy thinking is here, which I think is very much as we have been talking about for a while now. Unfortunately, it seems like the Biden administration is really in this sort of almost sanctimonious like, look, we did what we could kind of uh, perspective, like as though every as though they have done every last thing that they could 
to uh to you know to to intervene on the on the pandemic and i, I want to just uh highlight this this is this is i'm going to start with where he where as i mentioned he uses explicitly the pandemic of the unvaccinated line which i know we've talked a lot about in the last few months since it was you know unveiled to the public on july 13th but it's really important so few people do really talk about this um and it is like very important to fight back against this specific framing but let me just let me just read a couple of lines of how exactly he talks about the the problem here and see if you can sense where he locates the problem (sighs) this is from his speech on thursday quote this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated and it's caused by the fact that despite america having an unprecedented and successful vaccination program despite (laughs) the fact that for almost five months free vaccines have been available in eighty thousand different locations we still have nearly 80 million americans who have failed to get the shot there you go we've been patient this is i'm skipping a couple of paragraphs just lest lest you say that i'm being uh uncharitable here so i am skipping a couple of paragraphs but they're basically i'm just i don't want to waste anyone's time they're equally shitty to what i just read we've been patient but our patience is wearing thin and your refusal has cost all of us so please do the right thing Don't just take it from me. Listen to the voices of unvaccinated Americans who are lying in hospital beds, taking their final breath, saying, if I had only been vaccinated, if only it's a tragedy. Don't let it become yours. This is not like that. I'm sorry. No matter what fucking West Wing imagination that you have for yourself of what is going on here, like that is not good. That that's not like. I don't know <laughs> leadership or whatever that is just cast that is literally just passing the buck that is casting blame on the on you know people who you know it, it's not it's people not who like he's like literally his actions are directly the ones that that are right. putting those people in danger I, like as we said there are there are people who are super ideologically you know anti like the covid vaccine or whatever but that's not fucking everybody that's not everyone who's unvaccinated and it is never going to be I mean, the unpopular take is that, you know, this time last year, we had more controlled spread and we had fewer um, people vaccinated. We had virtually no one vaccinated. And that's because NPIs, when they're properly layered, reduce community spread. But like Biden's actions and, and the way that the administration came in and was, you know, barreling towards Fourth of July, like it was some sort of you know, apocalyptic death drive, like mega event that they just like had to get there as quickly as they could. Um, That's had real consequences. And now, you know, even in the rhetoric where he's like reportedly trying to save the people he's cast off the boat in the first place, you know, it's just the most arrogant, arrogant, like hypocritical way of trying to frame how to fix the spread that has been accelerated by the administration's own policies. I mean, it's like the only thing I have to say to like whoever wrote this for Biden is like fucking physician, heal thyself. Like what's wrong with you? (laughs) I mean, I'll be honest with you guys. and This might be uncomfortable. So, um, you know, do with it what you will. (laughs) I I don't know. I sort of disagree. Um, in in terms of I don't know, just as a piece of political rhetoric, anyways, there's a catharsis element of it that it's ch- channeling, and I think I think that could be. I don't know what it. I don't know that catharsis is great as a public health um, strategy. <laughs> I think probably not. But like I can see, I see 
the I see like a, a like the politics of it. I I, I absolutely feel that there that it's possible to to like get get a feeling of catharsis from him saying that because um, that's how because that's how this like the whole pandemic has has been like rhetorically constructed from the beginning. It's you know brother against brother, not the bosses against anyone, right? That's I mean it 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 to me like feeds into that uh sort of rhetorical world that has already been like prepared and i can imagine within that world that there's there's a catharsis but yeah i i you know there are certain um things that it of course is like going to like uh leave out which is yeah this is at some point like one has to recognize there are reasons why like it, it is not a just a sort of American cultural phenomenon that you have a lot of vaccine skepticism and reluctance to take the vaccine is because we have an absolutely like abominable health system, right? It has to be the case that it has something to do with our health system. But like, again, we're back to the things like as a president, you can't apparently like talk about that because it, it goes foursquare against the idea that like everything will be like as it was uh everything you know is nothing will fundamentally change right <laughs> that's you like if 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 you if that is the way that you're like campaigning and then you have build back better like which of those things do you think is going to win out <laughs> yeah no i and i think ultimately you know unfortunately not nothing that's been proposed this week is going to make a meaningful dent in protecting anyone who is like out there vaccinated or unvaccinated who is being made vulnerable by their working conditions yeah and um, unfortunately so yeah and and it's uh, unclear who will be to blame for whatever carnage ensues right well i think it's pretty clear who will be blamed so. <laughs> yeah um, do we want to move us? <laughs> <laughs> the death panel, personally. The death panel. Yeah. Us, yes. Um, the we're the uh, three horsemen of the apocalypse. We did that. We were simply too uncharitable to the Biden administration. Yes. Um, so speaking of being uncharitable, do you want to move on to our second <laughs> yes, topic for today? Absolutely. Um, so there is a new book coming out that got a that has been getting a lot of press. Uh, in advance of its publication date called The Genetic Lottery. And it is by a woman named Catherine Page Harden. And there is so much buzz surrounding this book because this is going to be the new, better, (laughs) more improved, more, you know, tasteful eugenics of the future well it's i can't believe it's not uh, eugenics <laughs> I guess. yeah it is the margarine of eugenics they, yeah uh, yeah well and in fact i think you said as um as you uh said to me earlier this morning b i think i have a feeling that we're going to be talking about this book and this author probably more than once in the next couple of uh weeks or coming months depending on what happens exactly i saw already that uh, Matt Iglesias, as he is exiting the weeds, uh, plans to have his first interview, uh, his first podcast experience through his Substack newsletter, be an interview with her, oh. actually. So that'll be fun. 
uh, not necessarily saying that we will cover that. I'm just saying that, you know, there, it seems like, um, there's a lot of, is she going to be barefoot <laughs> for that like, interview? We're going to cover that media, we're going to cover that media event, red carpet. Like we're outside Absolutely. of the Grauman's Chinese theater where Maddie Glacius is about to interview eugenicists. Like, we're standing outside Matt Iglesias' Maryland home where it seems that he has not put on socks in five days anyway both subject and interviewer are barefoot for the entire interview so i i okay i got i got off track there a little bit but i will say that so b said to me this morning something that i think is astute which is that the so the thing that we're going to talk about specifically today is this new yorker profile that appeared of her in the last week which is wild something else um You know, we'll probably read a couple of quotes from it, but I would just say, like, you know, I would recommend I wouldn't really recommend reading it. But if you if if you're if you're coming at it from the right mindset and what we explain sounds funny to you, then like maybe maybe I don't know, do or do not do it to yourself. I don't know what I will say is so what what B mentioned, for example, is that what's very interesting about the New Yorker article is that uh, it, it appears that from sort of a PR perspective, whether it's uh, Harden herself or her publisher or something like that is kind of aware that the immediate, uh, the immediate response to this book, the genetic lottery is probably going to be a fresh round of, uh, people calling her things like i guess in the past she's been called like charles murray in a dress that's, that's, no um, she's known as charles murray in a skirt oh great there we go so that's what that's what as, her colleagues um in the field of bioethics call her often right and so if you don't know what we mean by that charles murray obviously famous you know the the bell curve guy modern day eugenicist but basically so it seems as though the sort of, you know, the PR department of her publisher is aware of and wants to get ahead of basically the fact that a bunch of people are going to look at this book and say, like, you're just trying to do eugenics, but woke. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm very excited to read this book because having read a lot of Paige Harden's uh, papers, I I have no doubt that this is going to be a tour de force of, um, you know, explaining criminality and success through these sort of vague arguments that she likes to make that it's sort of it's like it's not just nurture, it's nature too. And if you ignore the nature too, then you can't design like policies that can properly um, help support people out of poverty. So the difference between, you know, Catherine Page Harden and Charles Murray is actually this. And that's what's really interesting, because Charles Murray says that some people are just biologically inferior and that welfare programs actually don't do any good because those people are just biologically inferior and no amount of social support, social insurance, social housing, education, food, water or clean air could possibly lift these people out of their imbecile like existence (laughs) because, as Charles Murray says, they are biologically inferior. Now, Catherine Page Harden, real revolutionary here, says, well, Charles Murray is wrong. What is actually true is that we cannot design the right welfare policies because we're too chicken shit to consider... (laughs) To acknowledge genetic difference. Right, to consider genetic difference in the way that we design social welfare supports. That's literally, that's the, that is the daylight between them. And I think, you know, that's very 
obviously going to be the thesis of this book. And this is her first, you know, big time thing. She's being rolled out as this personality. And I think it's very wise to get out in front of this and basically try and rebrand eugenics as this sort of accessible, somehow newly... Oh my God, I'm laughing. Newly progressive, like this new exciting idea for a new like, progressive era, as if like the sort of progressive democratic ideology has not always been connected to eugenic thought. Like <laughs> what? Well, so this is my question. Okay. I have, I have this, I have this pet idea and I want to see, I want to see how this situation runs through it. Right. <laughs> so my, my pet idea is that like, Orthodoxy is it never usually has to make arguments for itself. Right. Um, that's why it's orthodoxy. You never have to say anything coherent when an orthodoxy exists because it doesn't need to defend itself. It's the fucking orthodoxy, right? So, like, only when orthodoxy gets challenged do you see really wacky, fun, new defenses of it. Um, <laughs> and so, like, yeah, people like reinvent. Like, I so you're think, saying like, this is a positive, well, a like, positive the, no, uh, so, so, but here's, but here's my question. Like in the sixties, you know, you saw, um, you know, like right wing economists, like defend is like have to come up with new ways after the civil rights movement of like redefending the idea of like oligarchy. Um, and you know, they, they come up with all this, all of these issues about like consent and like super majoritarianism and unanimity and all these things. <laughs> and like, so here's my question, like why now? Uh, and it might be the case that there's like some orthodoxy that's being challenged it, uh, in a way. It also sort of doesn't seem like it has been, but like, why is this, why is this like gaining traction now? Uh, as opposed to like before, like ostensibly the initial like critiques of Murray were like, uh, when when they came out, we're like, yeah. By the way, this is uh, insane, and this is like race science, and like has no bearing on like reality, right? But um, like Stephen Jay Gould's like, you know, and immediately comes out like, this is all like, this is like ludicrous. But like, why? But like, this is a very different way of attacking. It. It's like, no, no, no. I basically agree with you on everything except your policy recommendations. So like, why why this now? I mean. Honestly, I think uh, to put on my like academic hat, like anyone in a disability studies or disability adjacent field would tell you that there is no phenomenon and that these figures just sort of spawn um, at regular intervals. And right. then they are elevated by the institutions that they are employed by because fundamentally the ideology of eugenics has remained in the hollowed halls of academe. So like that's my like professional answer, right? I think the idea really is that like nothing about what Catherine Page Harden is basically selling is any different from like what the Freakonomics guys were selling. This is just a popular ideology which has been popular in the United States in particular since the 1920s. Yeah, well and just frequently updated with like right. a, a slightly different toolkit in her case this uh this like new new way of surveying like multiple gene sequences at once for like different behaviors, right? Right. And and so every once in a while a new technology emerges and a new figure emerges with a way to explain how this time it's okay to use it. And this time we won't repeat the mistakes of the past. And I think part of it is that you 
you know, the ideology of eugenics is ultimately one that is incredibly destructive and people are very resistant to it at like the level of their community, but at the level, the sort of abstract level of society-wide eugenics, it can become a very um, attractive, simple solution to things, right? And it makes the answers to the complex problems of society very, very easy. Well, I mean, I I think so. Okay. Either way, this person is here, right? Right. And I think that, uh, you know, I think it could be said, you know, maybe either one, I think either one could be correct. I think, I think B, you're correct that often, uh, like the figures like this do sort of spawn, uh, at random, uh, intervals or at semi regular intervals, I think. Also, it could be the case that, um, something is, you know that in some way there is some challenge uh that that is like prompting this reaction in in particular i will say though that regardless of really regardless of which outcome i think that one of the reasons that this stuff um is so easily allowed to flourish is actually because for the most part even if they're even if this is in some sense uh sparked by some sort of cultural or academic challenge there, there is precious little that is capable of really ideologically resisting this stuff. And when I say that, I think, for example, like, let me just highlight, let me just highlight my absolute favorite part from this New Yorker profile, because I think this really gets to the sort of key of why, um, if, 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 for example, what Hardin says in this quote is something that she genuinely believes and also is something that just in terms of having a having a critical or ideological framework apparently no one has ever been able to really explain to her um that says a lot about sort of the limit like the the sort of limitations of sort of like the horizon of what is um allowed in terms of like ideological pushback against eugenic ideology really right um so here here is the uh here's the quote so she's speaking of harden is speaking of um this this figure who appears throughout the new yorker profile who is a mentor to mentor figure to her and who also kind of has a resistance to the um really the premise of her ideas um And uh, she says of him, Eric says it's dangerous to talk about genes if you don't know exactly how they're associated with the outcome. I'm quoting Hardin now. But we don't even really know how exactly poverty changes things. Why is it good to be adopted into a rich family? She's talking about how, you know, when people people who signal like well it's not it's obviously not just genes it's social determinants things like that because right. you know that when you have like twin studies or whatever uh for example that you, you can have two people with the same genes one is like put into uh you know put into a situation where they have all of these social privileges and they have significantly different life outcomes by whatever fucking you know trepanning metrics you want to uh, ascribe to them, right? But they do have these very different uh, outcomes, and so she says. Ba- she she says again, basically, li- literally, she says, "We don't even really know how exactly poverty changes things." Like, yeah. And I just want to say, you know, <laughs> let me introduce you to a little thing called uh, the social determinants of health. I mean, I know health is a limitation here, but like, you know, the the sort of this structure and like an analysis through this framework still i think stands very well to be adapted for for talking about something like this uh or the things that she's talking about because like social determinants of health for example when understood to include the political economy like to include capitalism itself as a primary social determinant right 
for example, there's the idea um, that's really often repeated in countries like the U.S., like major colonial powers and things like that, that the innovation of the the private health sector or whatever is something that like increases the specifically they say like increases life expectancy. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's when you actually like look at these um, systems, what is actually a just as big, if not bigger impact on quote unquote life expectancy, but clean running water. Mm -hmm. clean air all these environmental issues just look like, at the social security administration death statistics honestly right. it's like every single fucking report it's income income yeah income, i mean income. Like, so okay i think you guys have answered my question though which is that like why why do you see this sort of like reinvention of this orthodoxy it's because i think an increasing number of people are coming to see that like oh actually there is this one big, huge variable that we've missed in thinking about life outcomes. Hmm. Capitalism. Like even normie economists like that. That's, you know, they have to now they, they can't say that capitalism <laughs> is bad. Right. right. Like I'm, I'm thinking in particular about like uh, people like Angus Deaton um, and the work on like deaths of despair. Right. They can't mm -hmm. say that like capitalism is bad, but they do have to say that it's contributing to the problem. That's right. now standard fair. Uh, and they, they have to say that like mm, life chances and people's like like lived experience of, of, of the world has something to do with the way that their like position in an economic order like affects their like, yeah, their, their consciousness in a way. And. This is a way of escaping that uh, yeah. entirely and like skirting it uh, entirely. It's a way of saying like we can deal with all of these. It, like it's a way of saying actually e even worse that like if you don't take this into consideration, if you don't take genetics into consideration, you're going to like you're not going to solve the problem and you're going to I don't know what like I don't know like stigmatize people if you don't consider like it, it's it's like I, is right. that like the woke argument they're like well, if you don't consider like genetics you're gonna like stigmatize people in some way and no, make it their fault like i, I don't understand it's, it's basically like her idea is she's like i'm disproving the bootstraps ideology because i'm showing that some people literally are are like biologically incapable of pulling themselves <laughs> up by their boot, bootstraps and that that is a um, sort of like a wish fulfillment fantasy of the American dream that only some people biologically have access to. So if we want to really, you know, have a democratic and equal society, we need to extend welfare to the biologically inferior because they are biologically unable to, you know, overcome their genetic destiny right. and whatever heritability like affects that. Wow. So the okay. thing, yeah. So like the thing that's really interesting here is that what she's using is actually the this sort of idea of compulsory charity as welfare, which comes from like Peter Singer's idea of like personhood under this sort of utilitarian ideology of like how much you can contribute to society makes ah, you whatever percentage Colvin, of wholeness. Uh, Professor Peter Singer. <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, it's like depending on your contributions are relative to your wholeness. And what she's saying is that some people, you know, like Peter Singer says, is that some people are just genetically, heritably, like, predisposed to never becoming whole persons and that unlike singer who says that you should just euthanize unwhole persons she says what we should do instead is like give them 
welfare money. So it's kind of like, um, you know, in a way, well, actually, no, she it doesn't is, really directly say that. She just, to be fair, right? So it's you know, it's like to, you know, her her whole deal is sort of like saying, oh, remember the eugenicists that you that were your fave in the eighties, seventies, and nineties. Um, well, I'm doing them, but like more palatable for this yeah, new I, generation. <laughs> It's, it's so, but I, like, uh, so much in my experience of life comes back to the excellent 1983 film Trading Places with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy, <laughs> um, a, a film that really does, for the most part, stand the test of time. But, like, that is the whole orientation, that, like, that's the whole orientation of the film. But, like, the plot of the film kind of nicely illustrates, like, no, this is, it, it truly, like, it's... It is these two capitalists who are like are having this debate like they're the only people for whom this debate is relevant. And the just just this this idea that somehow we're going to like fix things by like fixing the gen like there's like a genetic lottery that people are like losing out on. It's just like I how much of the world do you have to ignore to for that to be. I mean, like, I don't know. I don't know what she's doing as a geneticist per se, but what I do know that this whole like, like the the book ending of this, like, oh, I'm gonna show them. I'm gonna show the right wing eugenicists that, like, uh, no, the actual strategy is a more like humanitarian welfare state. That is, um, I would. It's it's not too clever by half. It's whatever the opposite of that is. Well, uh, to extend your film metaphor here, what she's really doing is actually, you know, she's not doing trading places. She's doing, um, you know, 1998, The Parent Trap with Lindsay Lohan, Ooh, right? Because yes. actually, the method, her method. Are you ready for this? Um, is twin studies, which is one of the most sort of widely. Uh, discredited and least trusted ways of studying um, behavioral genetics. And so her big deal is that she looks at pairs of twins and how pairs of twins develop and takes into account assumptions about their environment and assumptions about their genetic similarity and then sort of runs with those assumptions and extrapolates these grand theories about the worth of human beings based on, you know, arbitrary measures of IQ and success, you know, as this big prefigured biological destiny, which, of course, um, you know, is already saying the main function of eugenics is to remove the blame um, for slow death from capitalism, right? That's what it was used for in 1918 when Charles Murray was first applying for funding from the Rockefeller Foundation. That's what, you know, the Cold Spring Harbor Lab was founded on, was a way of selling a cheaper, more humane way to manage the people that they were just biologically beyond help, right? And progressives over and over and over since the 1920s have just rebranded it and rebranded it. And this is just, I think, one of the most fun and novel rebrands we've seen in a while, because this yeah. is like the girl boss, chic, woke eugenics. <laughs> right. And that's, you know, an accomplishment. And she's fucking barefoot in the picture, too, standing in like an abandoned room with like paintings with like a phrenology painting on the floor. And like she looks like she's in a spooky attic somewhere in Massachusetts or some shit like, you know, they are making her into this kind of like figure, I think, to lead a new era of eugenics. And, um, you know, I, I think I, it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about her what book when it comes out but it should be really really important to underline the fact that like her methods are bunk 
and her research is really full of shit. Yeah. And like every story that you see praising her work in the lead up to the book and after the book comes out, like keep in mind, like the methods that she is coming to these conclusions, like she might as well be, you know, divining at a crystal ball. <laughs> I'm still stuck on uh, the trading places thing. I'm just imagining trading places too, as two guys from the American Enterprise Institute competing to see <laughs> like who can be first to convince a state to adopt genetic testing to get onto Medicaid. Or something <laughs> like that. Um, Turn those machines back on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, RIP Don Amici. So I, I want to say, um, you know, I, I want to keep us kind of a little bit in the realm of the specific uh, to, you know, we don't as as, as I think we've you know mentioned in Telegraph, we're going to keep watching uh, Harden. Who, who knows uh, where she'll end up? You know what I mean? I wouldn't be surprised if we see her in some like really, you know, uh, interesting and unfortunate uh, places for a figure like this to to end up in the, in the next couple of months. But basically, um, I do want to point out just because we've talked so much about the, the, like the, the idea that this is tied in some way to, you know, like the idea that we should use genetics to understand how to implement and design redistributive policies. Right. Cause that is, I I think what you were saying before, um, which I know you acknowledged, but like, I think what you were saying before be of like it suggesting that there's that she's suggesting that this proves that there should be, you know, quote unquote, like more welfare. I think that's a, that is a little bit of an oversimplification, but it is, she does, I think very generally suggest that this should guide policy right Right. this should guide welfare policies in general and i think if i can be allowed one more quote from the new yorker profile i would highlight this one thing in specific which i think should absolutely cast doubt on whether she is someone who should be listened frankly should be listened to at all when it comes to how this sort of uh how you know her genetic data uh information how her research could be applied to you know welfare program design again using a a method that's been discredited since the 1970s right um (laughs) but so let's see so here, here so here's a here's something from from the new yorker article as harden puts it in her book uh, quote, genetic data gets one source of human differences out of the way so that the environment is easier to see, unquote. For example, beginning in 2002, the federal government spent almost a billion dollars on something called the Healthy Marriage Initiative, a Bush era program, which sought to reduce marital conflict as a way of combating poverty and juvenile crime. Hardin was not surprised to hear that the policy had no discernible effect. Her own research showed that when identical twin sisters have marriages with different levels of conflict, (laughs) their children have equal risk for delinquency. The point was not to estimate the effects of DNA per se, but to provide an additional counterfactual for analysis. Would an observed result continue to hold up if the people involved had different genes? Now, I don't know. I don't know if any of us here know much about the marriage. Uh, what, what is it? What was it called? The uh, Healthy Marriage Initiative of the Bush administration. No, but please I, tell me you've done some research on this. I've done at least a little bit, and I will say <laughs> that I didn't. I, I, I didn't. I really didn't have to go far. I will say. Um, so here's here's the setup, basically. So the Healthy Marriage Initiative, which she's saying. So uh, just just to be really clear. 
if you just, you know, I haven't read her book yet. I don't know exactly what she says about the Healthy Marriage Initiative, but if you read this article in particular, this glowing profile of Harden in The New Yorker, you will come away with the idea that basically the, the, the assumption here is the suggestion is the Healthy Marriage Initiative program under the Bush administration should have worked, right? The, 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 the idea is this thing called the Healthy Marriage Initiative that the federal government spent a billion dollars on simply because it spent a billion dollars on or simply because it was called the Healthy Marriage Initiative should have led to healthier marriages. But Harden's research shows that, you know, genetics disproves that or something. Basically, it was a that's, that's waste of money from here. the beginning. Like, yeah. Again, I don't know what she says in her book exactly, but that's what the New Yorker says. So I'm just going to roll with that. Let me tell you what the the uh, uh, Healthy Marriage Initiative was. Um, and to do this, I'm going to use the words uh, of the Heritage Foundation. Nice. From the t- from the period who uh, who had a, a helpful who posted a hel- helpful explainer. This will be very quick, I promise. But so again, here's. Here's the Heritage Foundation on the Healthy Marriage Initiative. Quote, The erosion of marriage during the past four decades has had large-scale negative effects on both children and adults. It lies at the heart of many of the social problems with which the government (laughs) currently grapples. The beneficial effects of marriage on individuals and society are beyond reasonable dispute. And there is a broad and growing consensus that government policy should promote rather than discourage healthy marriage. In response to these trends, President George W. Bush has proposed, as part of welfare reform reauthorization, the creation of a pilot program to promote healthy and stable marriage. Participation in the program would be strictly voluntary. Funding for the program will be small scale, $300 million per year. This sum represents one penny to promote healthy marriage for every $5 government currently spends to subsidize single parenthood. Um, so basically they, they go on to say the collapse of marriage is the principal cha- is the principal cause of child <laughs> poverty in the United States. Um, you heard it here, uh, first 20 years later, folks, uh, the heritage foundation is telling you to be a breeder. Um, overall, approximately 80% of long-term child poverty in the United States occurs among children in from quote unquote broken or never formed families. Um, so basically, uh, they go on to explain that the the idea is the idea of the uh, healthy marriage initiative under the Bush administration was to basically fulfill the promise of '90s welfare reform under Clinton, mm-hmm. and also to combat uh, you know putative problems of uh, you know broken marriages and and the importance of uh, marriages. And here's what the program was going to do. Uh, again, quoting from the Heritage Foundation. The proposal creates two separate funds to promote marriage. In the first, $100 million per year would be provided in grants to state governments for programs to promote healthy marriage. Participation in this program would be voluntary and competitive. States would be neither required to participate <laughs> nor <laughs> guaranteed funds. Is like competition. <laughs> it's amazing, right? States would be neither required to participate nor guaranteed funds. Oh Instead, God, they yes. would compete for funding by submitting program proposals to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Oh the states God. with the best proposals would be selected to receive funds. States receiving funding would be required to match federal grants with state funds. Okay, so even worse. Wow. Oh my god. Both funding pools could be used for a, su- a specified set of activities consistent with the overarching strategy of promoting healthy marriage. These 
activities include one public advertising campaigns on the value of marriage and the skills needed to increase marital stability and health two education in high schools about the value of marriage relationship skills and budgeting three (sighs) marriage education marriage skills instruction and relationship skills programs you see where i'm going with this this is basically this was an ad campaign right so (laughs) miss miss twin study right get into it Miss, Miss Twin Study, who says her research definitively proves that this, this competitive conditional funding program where states compete, you know, Miss America style to promote marriage, that her twin study research definitively proves that the Bush administration wasted a billion dollars. That is the fundamental bullshit that underlines <laughs> no, this bitch's methods. Oh I mean, come on. Is, we should oh have our God. own bracket. No, but she's not like, a quack at all. Not at all. No, no, not at all. We should we should have our own bracket where we like pit, you know, one week maybe it'll be her versus Emily Austin. Whoever survives gets to go against Matt Iglesias. Maybe we'll do a eugenics bracket for <laughs> December, like a like a advent calendar, but with our faves. I think just mentioning Oster in this episode threatens the collapse of the fucking universe (laughs) i've made a singularity i'm really sorry southland tales in here or something oh my god yeah but you know what you know it's like a really good sound policy is you know an eight-year implementation window for dental for medicare recipients oh my god yeah why is it either like you know the survivor island competition version of policy or like the incremental change version of policy and nothing in between it's either three layer cake (laughs) or glide path um so i will just say really quickly the list sort of continues from the from the heritage (laughs) foundation thing so just just to be clear i know i'm not reading all of it what i will say is yeah the all the jokes that you guys are saying about it absolutely correct basically yes this thing that she studied which you know, she's saying, but this Bush era program didn't reduce the problems because of I bad marriage or whatever. Twins. But they, um, they, you know, so she's saying that. But yes, just just to be really clear. Yeah, it, it, I know it's not it was not simply an advertising campaign, even though that's sort of how I, I characterized it. But it was very explicitly like a uh, competitive block grant program requiring matching state funds that also had differences in implementation depending on obviously you know what these competitive uh, state proposals were and the main idea for this program was explicitly that i don't have the thing right in front of me but basically the policy document for it says like it is aimed at promoting marriage among promoting and trying to sustain marriage among low income families so it's perfect i don't know i can't i can't think of anything better than this person obviously not understanding any sort of like analysis of uh of anything that could exist outside of the sphere of capitalism basically and simultaneously then just assuming i guess clearly it seems must have assumed that this uh you know bush era program which did not 
you know, do anything. It's not like it just funneled a bunch of extra money to families or anything, which, you know, maybe could be a way if that's what if that was what your goal is. But still, you know, like, and not that it's, that's the only I mean, thing. it's hilarious, it's like, too, because like also last thing about twin studies, I promise the other problem with t- twin studies is they have a sampling error where people with more money who can afford in vitro fertilizations are more more likely to have twins. So like her sample <laughs> will always be of more wealthy people portions of the population by default too Mm. oh god well this was fun that was so much fun fun, actually (laughs) yeah (laughs) well i think that's a good place to leave it listeners if you want to support the show and get access to the weekly bonus episode which now comes out on tuesdays become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod and if you want to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends tweet about your favorite episodes or follow us at death panel underscore cool and uh as always medicare for all now solidarity forever stay alive another week Harden felt almost immediately unwelcome at the regular fellows' lunches. 
Many of the left-leaning social scientists seemed certain that behavior genetics research, no matter how well-intentioned, was likely to lead us down the garden path to eugenics. The world would be better, Hardin was told, if she quit. When their cohort went to see Hamilton, the others professed surprise that Hardin and Tucker Drob had enjoyed it, as if their work could be done only by people uncomfortable with an inclusive vision of American history.